Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. Black Girl Dad Week is wrapping up today. We'll learn more about this special series of events from the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League, Stephanie Hightower. Dave James will chat with Dwayne Casares, the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families, on the struggles that Gen Zers are experiencing in the workplace. Plus, we'll learn more about his mission to help at-risk kids from former Ohio State and NBA standout Lawrence Funderburg. And state politics with Doug Petcash of Face the State. First up on Columbus Perspective... In honor of Black History Month, we are chatting with people in the Columbus Black community who are making a difference. Stephanie Hightower is the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League, also their first female president and CEO. And she's joining us today to talk about a really special event that just happened in central Ohio called Black Girl Dad Week. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Miss Kate. Thank you for having me. Well, we have a lot to talk about. Is this the first time that Black Girl Dad Week has been held? Well, this, no. As a matter of fact, last year was a pilot, and uh, the Columbus Urban League, because of our um, programs around uh, fatherhood um, and reuniting fathers with their children, um, we thought that this would be this 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 work or this program aligned with um, our work around the family. And so when Jewel Wood approached us and said, "Would you help us kick this first year off?" We said, "Absolutely." And it was a monumental success. And so then he this year decided to do um, even bigger and broader with a full week. There was maybe three days last year of programming. Then this week, it's, you know, a full week of programming. Uh, and um, it has really uh, turned into a, spectac- a spectacular opportunity for uh, girls and dads uh, to bond and um, and to grow together. Each day of the week, and it is concluding today, Sunday, has focused on kind of a different area of family relations, father-daughter relationships. Can you give us more of kind of a a thumbnail sketch of that? Yes. Um, And so, you know, this week there was an opportunity for um, uh, social social activism. And so uh, this past week, uh, Roland Martin came to town to speak about the state of Black America and what, you know, Black people need to be doing um, and and supporting uh, and why they should be supporting uh, Black media and how that will have a big impact on the 2024 election. And then the next day there was uh, take your daughter to work. And so for those individuals who could do that, you know, another bonding opportunity for fathers to you know, take their daughters to their places of employment, so they could actually see you know what daddy does um, and how he interacts and 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 what professionalism looks like and what hard work looks like. So then there was that opportunity uh, this uh, last week, and then um, on Thursday um, there was a call to men, um, and this is is in line with you know, what we're doing um, at the Columbus Urban League. And it really, it was, you know, an important community conversation 
um, uh, there was an expert by the name of Tony Porter who came to town, um, and he had um, an opportunity to talk to to black men. Um, and this is also about mental health issues uh, in the black community. And so there was a call to black men and fraternities and faith communities and families, you know, to come out and listen to this to, to this um, to this conversation on healing. Um, and how we need to again through healing, black men can 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 be better fathers and be better better contributors to their families uh, and and to the community. Uh, and then the big event, you know, was the father daughter dance, mm. and you know that sort of speaks to itself. Just an opportunity for young girls to be pretty and dress up and be with their dads. Um, you know, we even have you know folks who have grown daughters who never had that opportunity to go somewhere with their dad before. And we had one of our staff people, uh, he took his daughter who just graduated from college um, and he had been incarcerated uh, for a long period of time. And so he took her. So those, you know, making those kind of memories and moments are really special. Research demonstrates these strong father-daughter relationships lead to happier and healthier women. And Stephanie, as you've said, in the black community specifically, it can be a really unique challenge to forge sometimes and to maintain healthy father-daughter relationships. At the Urban League, where you said you're focused on, you know, families and, like you said, reuniting fathers and daughters after perhaps some estrangement or separation, what are you seeing as recent trends in terms of the way things go for these families? Have there been any major shifts or changes recently? Well, you know, Kate, I'll say this. There's a couple of things. First of all, um, uh, you know, there there is this stereotype that 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 black men are not good fathers and 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 don't want to be good fathers, and that is just absolutely not true. Um, what happens a lot of times, and I'll give you a case in point. Um, we have with with our father to father program, you have men who uh, may have been incarcerated, or men who get divorced, or men who may have a felony background. And because of the stain um, on their record, now they're unemployed and they can't pay child support if they're not, you know, no longer with the child's mother. And so because of that inability to be, um, to financially be able to take care of their kids, that usually causes, you know, the strain between the parents, right? And then, which means then you can't see your children. Um, but this, but unfortunately, because of the cycle, the cycle is you, you know, there are men out here with people don't realize who um, become convicted felons because they can't pay their child support. Uh, and that that is the truth, that you can become a convicted felon for not paying child support. All right. Well, so now you've made me a convicted felon. I can't find a job. So now I cannot pay my child support. So the cycle continues. And these are men. There are a lot of situations. And it's not just black community. It's white community. It's Hispanic community. It's 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 underprivileged or under marginalized communities. When you continue to have a system that sets you up for failure, then you what you're doing is you're breaking the family up. And that's what we see a lot of times 
through our programming is that men want to be with their children. Gosh, when we when we have our father to father graduations, you know, the whole family shows up. Kids are proud to be on stage or take photos with their dads that they've completed um, this this work. We've had men who are reunited or even get custody of their children afterwards. So they want to take care of their families, but you have a system of inequalities and systemic racism that continues to not allow them to be the men that they know they have the ability to be just because of the way the system is rigged. Stephanie Hightower is the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League, and her organization is wrapping up a really busy week of activities, Black Girl Dad Week. You partnered with a mental health organization on this project, right, Stephanie? Yes, we did. Um, Black Behavioral Mail um, um, and and Jewel Wood is the founder. And again, one of the things that we know in our work is that a lot of times our young people, as well as um, a lot of our adults, that there has been some kind of trauma. Um, you know, COVID in particularly, particular really helped to uh, elevate a lot of trauma that is in the Black community. And so we've got to figure out how to heal. Um, black folks a lot of times don't want to talk about mental health and mental illness. Um, the Columbus Urban League, we just hosted an event a couple of weekends ago called Just Heal Bro. And it was an opportunity for black men um, to have a safe space to really talk about what their challenges are and then to create support groups so that they can then have people who can help them through their challenges and to talk um, and be open. And they kicked all the women out and they were able to just, you know, heal and have healing conversations. And we have to begin to do more of that in the black community. Indeed. Was there anything else that the Urban League is up to that you'd like to touch on today, Stephanie? Well, you know, our North Star for 2024-2025, Kate, is about closing the wealth gap. And so we know that if we can build strong families and have, you know, be engaged with events like Father, Daughter, Dad Week, then we know that we can help to build healthy families, that we can get people on track. And that's one of the ways that we can help to close the wealth gap in Columbus and Franklin County. If you would like to know more about what the Columbus Urban League is doing or how you could get involved or support, it's very easy to find them online. C-U-L for Columbus Urban League dot org. Stephanie Hightower, president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League. You probably need a nap after this busy week, so <laughs> we'll let you get to it. But thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Kate. One in four Americans today are living with a disability. I'm one of them. I care deeply about creating a world we can all fully participate in, free from stigma, misperceptions, and barriers. And we've got a trusted ally on our side, an organization we can rely on, Easter Seals. Rooted in communities nationwide, Easter Seals helps empower millions of people, regardless of age or disability, through its life-changing services and powerful advocacy. Today and every day, Easter Seals is leading the way to full equity, inclusion, and access to healthcare, employment, and education for people with disabilities, families, and communities. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Learn more and get involved at EasterSeals.com.
When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun, and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. When you take a walk around your neighborhood and notice all the things that make it feel like home, like all the houses, or your neighbor, Miss Rita, or that movie theater in the strip mall that might look a little worn down, one thing might be a little harder to notice because somewhere tucked in that neat row of houses is hunger. It could be your next door neighbor or your coworker because over 30 million Americans don't know where their next meal is coming from. Hunger lives in neighborhoods all around us, but it doesn't have to. Together, we can provide a billion meals by 2030 because everyone should be welcome at the table. Learn more at nourishingneighbors.com. Let's break the cycle of hunger together. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He is the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Hey, Dwayne, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you, buddy? Good. Thanks for talking to us. For the uh, 819th time, tell us what did Directions... You did I did. <laughs> I am so impressed that you can count that high, Dave. I haven't had any sleep for a week looking through oh, this. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I think you need to change your priorities here, Dave. <laughs> what is Directions for Youth and Families? I have no idea. I haven't slept in those days either. <laughs> We're a nonprofit social service agency. Um, we offer counseling and case management services to Columbus. We also have two after-school centers. Uh, we serve just under 7,000 kids a year. So we've turned the corner into the new year. What's going on with uh, what you folks do and with kids in school and all that? Well, one really good thing is uh, we opened up our new uh, Crittenden Community Center out in the Kimberly Parkway area. So um, that's been, you know, seven years in the making, and the pandemic kind of uh, gave us a little speed bump in that process, but it's all done. It's, uh, it looks great. Um, it's all paid off, so really grateful for Columbus being a giving community um, to help us put that together. So that's our latest big thing. Um, uh, we are moving forward. We, uh, um, have, we're probably in 40 different schools with our social workers. So. Wow. Yeah, and we we work with an awful lot of kids on mental health issues um, throughout the year. So we don't talk about this very often, just want to touch on it. When uh, you uh, start working with a kid from a school district, and, and again, this is not done like in an office setting per se. You go out into the field and talk to them more often than not. How do, yep. how do you uh, find out about these kids? What's going on with them in school that triggers you folks getting involved? Yeah, it's a lot of it. I think, you know, probably the... the um, you know, we, we diagnose everybody. It's a full diagnostic assessment that we develop a treatment plan, just like you would go, it would happen if you went to any other uh, traditional mental health counseling center. Uh, the difference is we do it all out in the community just because we want to break down barriers of transportation and, and child care and, and all those obstacles that end up preventing people from getting uh, a good mental health treatment. 
Um, we get a lot of referrals from the schools. Actually, we can get them from anybody. A parent can call. Uh, we get them through our, our after-school centers. It's uh, Anxiety is probably one of the big things, you know, oppositional defiance. Um, certainly kids with ADHD challenges, uh, depression is certainly very prevalent. So all the traditional things, it, it's just uh, we're very heavily youth-focused. And uh, you're a nonprofit, so uh, many times this is at no cost to the families that are involved, right? Yes, yes. It's one of the things that, that, that's my job, to make sure that we stay <laughs> free. We do not want payment to ever be an obstacle for anyone uh, to receive the care that they need. And we value that very highly. So, uh, yeah, we're basically a free service. And real quick, before we get to the topic we're going to discuss, uh, you know, when we have an unbelievably mild winter like this, Sometimes global warming does have its benefits, I guess, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to agree with you on that. I happen to like snow. <laughs> yeah. uh, this, this has got to be great for the psyche of kids, for all of us in general. Uh, you know, t- I mean, it was a really cloudy period for December and a lot of January, but warmer than normal for a lot of it, and that helps. Yeah, that allows you to get out of the house so you don't you know, go stir crazy by being you know locked up in your homes or, or in school and in house all day. But like I said, I'm I'm a snow person, so I like being outside during the snow. There's a lot of great activities you can do in the snow. For me, I, and it probably is for for every person, it's different. I would rather have snow and sunshine than cloudy and no snow. That's just the way I'm wired. But um, uh, the cloudiness has takes its toll. I mean, their seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. So. Um, that that can be a, a challenge as well. Sounds like somebody needs to move to Minnesota. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I like all four seasons, Dave. Um, I just happen to appreciate snow as well. I think it's kind of cool. You know, I, I used to be a paper boy when I was young, uh, and it was a morning paper route. And so there are times that I met up at 6 in the morning after a fresh snowfall, and I grew up in a pretty impoverished community. A fresh snowfall makes every community look beautiful. And when you're delivering papers at 6 in the morning, you're usually like the first footprints in the snow. Right. And I've never forgotten how beautiful that was. Um, it was so peaceful, so serene. And that's just always stayed with me. It's great. Again, uh, Dwayne Kassar is joining us, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. He's also a licensed therapist. And we uh, stumbled across uh, a survey that we both found really interesting from ResumeBuilder.com, looking at... Gen Z, Generation Z, which includes adults who are up to about 26, 27 years old and younger, and the way that they are struggling in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you look at everybody who's got so many openings or or vacancies or can't staff up, there are so many uh, issues and variables that play into that. But certainly... um, Lately, we've been hearing an awful lot about a the whole new wave of Gen Zers coming in and how they approach work uh, um, and, and look at work. So uh, that can be challenging for some people who aren't willing to adjust. This uh, survey from Resume Builder found 31% of hiring managers say they avoid hiring Gen Zers and would prefer to hire older workers. Also, they say during the recruiting process that Gen Zers ask for too much money, lack communication skills, and don't seem engaged. And during hiring interviews, the managers say Gen Zer candidates don't dress appropriately, 58%, and struggle with eye contact. Interesting stuff. What are, what are your thoughts behind some of this? Well, you know, to start with, if you look at, you know, Gen Zers, they go up to, what, uh, you know, 25, 26. Um, when you look at brain development, brain development actually for males uh, – um, fully developed 
usually is around 26. For females, it's earlier by like 24. Um, so that has its own properties, and the frontal lobe is really the last part to develop. And that, that's your reasoning and stuff, but I, I, it also formulates where you're heading from there. So um, I just think it's interesting that that's where they fit in, and, and that falls in there. Um, that first one, about 31% of hiring managers said they avoid hiring Gen Zers. You're not going to have a choice. I mean, you're going to point this all you want, and you're going to have open positions. Um, right. Uh, you're just not going to have a choice. I think that that uh, uh, is kind of interesting. Um, and in the in the you know the whole thing about them asking for too much money or lack communication skills or don't seem engaged. That's um, you know part of that is I really think this generation. I mean, uh, the generation before it did it too, the Gen Xers, but uh, Gen Zers really did grow up on the internet totally. Right. Um, and to engage people through the internet or your communications on the internet is totally different. We saw this um, after the pandemic. I, you know, I, we work with a lot of schools and therefore have a lot of relationships with teachers. Um, and it really surprised me that after like two years uh, of the pandemic and isolation, when schools opened up again, one common thing I heard, regardless of the district, whether it was uh, um, in my golf league, I work with several teachers somewhere in uh, the New Albany School District, somewhere in Southwest City School District, somewhere in Columbus. I, they all kind of said the same thing, and I thought that this was interesting. The language of the kids really turned. Like they were using foul language in school like it was every day. Well, for two years, you could do it at home on the Internet. And what are you going to do? I mean, right. this is how some people communicate. And it became so common for them that that was brought into the school. So I think there's many patterns that happened during the Internet that eventually not just for school age kids, but, but even um, early 20 people just brought it back into the workplace. Uh, it's just uh, uh, the different setting that it's being exposed. Yeah, this generation would have been born around 1997, which is right around the time that the Internet became completely common. Yeah, and, and by the, they know. All right, and by the time they were even kindergartners, it was so well established that everybody knew they couldn't live without it. Yeah, when you're always on the Internet and, and not so much uh, – you know, work, being with people outside and doing stuff with people, your engagement skills probably are going to go down a little bit. Um, there's a buffer there, uh, and um, sometimes that can be good, and sometimes that can just be bad uh, because it's not face-to-face. Talking with Dwayne Casares from uh, Directions for Youth and Families, another uh, thing that these uh, that Resume Builder found was that 30% of hiring managers say that, uh, or no, I'm sorry, 60% say that Gen Zers exhibit entitlement and are difficult to manage. And I would think, too, that the Internet could play with some of that as well because that generation is so much more knowledgeable, not necessarily smarter, but simply more knowledgeable or or have had so many resources available to them to learn stuff compared to, say, when you and I were that age, that they th- yeah, you know, that, that it even you makes more sense for them to think they're a know-it-all. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the, the sense of entitlement, you know, I... I you know, I think it really depends on how you look at it. So one of the things that I think that Gen uh, uh, Zers do exhibit, um, and when they say 60% of entitlement, well, what does entitlement mean? Because they demand a work-life balance? I would say that's not even Gen Zers. That was everybody coming out of the pandemic right. uh, found out that work. they looked at work a little bit differently. Um, and there needed to be more of a work-life balance. I think Gen Zers just have embraced that. 
Um, I mean, they've totally embraced that. And their demand for work-life balance is a turnoff to generations above them who are doing the hiring and didn't live under those standards. Um, but times have changed. You're going to have to adjust. You know, the fact of the matter is, the, the workforce out here, you're not going to have any choice but to start to change how you're going to end up interacting with your workplace environment because the generations coming in are going to require it. We have for a long time here uh, developed a management system around support and not surveillance. Most businesses are built around surveillance, um, and that's fine for businesses because their bottom line is profit, but our, our bottom line is human life, so we never thought that those were appropriate standards to employ, that we needed to support our workers. Well, I will say even businesses are now going to have to start moving from being a, a an environment, a culture of surveillance, to a culture of support if they're going to be able to embrace, hire, and keep Gen Zers. Um, I just think it's a pretty interesting twist. It seems like, uh, as you mentioned, this is something that, that all generations and maybe boomers would be right behind the Gen Zers because they're getting closer to checking out anyway, and they may feel like, you know, I spent two years working from home. I don't need or want to have to do this again back in the office. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think that, that sometimes we point that at as a, a Gen Zers attitude, and I think it's just an everybody attitude. Um, I, you know, even, you know, the, one of the things, the, the things you threw out there that uh, uh, 58% of managers thought that Gen Zers didn't dress appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to tell you, um, uh, coming out of the pandemic, I don't dress the same as I did before it. I mean, I was always a sport coat, you know, your suit and tie guy. I rarely do that. I remember the first time I had to do that because still, you know, a lot of people were doing stuff on Zoom. It wasn't in person. And the first time I had to put a jacket and wore hard shoes and not jeans. I mean, I wasn't wearing sweatpants, but I, I, I actually turned to my wife and said, I feel like I'm a clown. Like, I haven't dressed up like this in so long. I can't believe I used to do this every day. So I think it changed things for everybody. Uh, it, it's easier to look at Gen Zers. But I think uh, boomers who are in a lot of C-suite positions, uh, they're going to have to change their attitude about some of those things. I certainly decided I was never going to go back to being suit and tie every day. Right. Um, I really just decided, why was I doing that? I always joke, I said, I have this whole closet full of ties. I don't know that I'll ever wear ties again. (laughs) uh, I'm not even sure what to do if someone needs to start a business that they get everybody's ties and do something with them. But I uh, I, honestly, I have an entire closet full of them. And maybe I've worn one in the last two years. It's... I think that's just a shift for everybody. And I think, you know, that kind of switch, too. Uh, we saw that happening in other areas with the dot-com companies, Google, Facebook. Yep. 20 years ago, when they created different spaces uh, in the workplace that included things like daycare and lounge areas and all that kind of stuff that older generations thought was kind of nuts at the time. You know, it's kind of funny, too, because you, you have, uh, because of all of that, I mean, each gener- brings its own, generation brings its own, like, flavor to the table. Um, and it's always the older generations who then end up like bashing them or whatever. Uh, and, you know, a lot of Gen Zers make fun of boomers, like, you know, boomers this, boomers that, boomers right. that. And some of it is valid. You know, some of it is very, very much true. Um, it's a different perspective. It's a different time. And you got to change with that. It's a, uh, uh, or, I mean, you can, you can choose not to, but that's going to make a lot of things tougher to deal with, particularly in the workplace. One of my favorite comments uh, in a newspaper article at the bottom when people comment, one of my favorite of all time, a little harsh, but I still loved it. It was, I can't wait till all you boomers die so we don't have to hear about the Beatles anymore. 
Well, I don't know that the Beatles would hurt anyone to listen to. So that's exactly right. Right, <laughs> they were wrong, but it was still funny. <laughs> my, my son was a, a millennial, and and he grew up with Motown. One time, I, I put a playlist together, and I said, "Here, it was for an event we were having." I said, "I need to appeal to people from twenty to seventy, and I uh, made this playlist. Will you look it over and tell me if I hit like you know your group, your generation?" I kind of have a feeling I went too heavy on Motown, and my son said, "Dad." You can never have too much Motown. And I thought, yes, I raised him right. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, <laughs> so, so don't be throwing Motown in with the Beatles in these little statements now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more info about your agency, Dwayne, what do they do? Uh, they can check us out on the web at www.dfyf.org. Do I even have to say www, or is that a boomer thing? That is a boomer thing, absolutely. Well, I am a boomer, I guess. So, uh, okay, uh, dfyf.org, how's that? That sounds um, good. Or they can call our intake department if they want to inquire about services at 614-294-2661. All right, Dwayne Casares, Directions for Youth and Families. Thanks for your time again, Dwayne. From one boomer to another boomer, thank you, Dave. <laughs> Thinking of buying a home? The Ohio Housing Finance Agency can help. We have programs designed to help make home ownership part of your future. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency's Ohio Heroes, Grants for Grads, and Your Choice Down Payment Assistance programs are all designed to help make purchasing a home affordable. To learn more, visit myohiohome.org. Sponsored by the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. I love this song. I love nachos. Loving everything? You might be buzzed. You know what I'd love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzz warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. You're listening to Columbus Perspective. I'm Kate Burdett and honored today to be joined by Mr. Lawrence Funderburg. He was born and raised right here in Columbus, Ohio, Played college basketball across the state line for a little bit with Bobby Knight over in Indiana before he transferred to Ohio State. And as many of us know, went on to NBA greatness. Lawrence joins us today, however, to talk about the ways that he gives back to his community, to his hometown. Lawrence, thanks so much for being here on Columbus Perspective today. Hey, thanks for having me. I know uh, bringing back some memories about Coach Bobby Knight. So we may or may not get a chance to address that, but uh, thank you for having me on your show. Well, it's our pleasure, and there's a lot to talk about with the Lawrence Funderburg Youth Organization. Tell me about how that got started and what gave you the idea to start this organization. Yeah, Yeah, so it started uh, actually 25 years ago. So uh, we got married, my wife and I, my wife, Manya, from Chillicothe, Ohio, uh, on um, August uh, the 11th, uh, 1998. And about a month later, we started the Lawrence Funderburg Youth Organization. So we're celebrating our 25 years of being in uh, business as an organization. Uh, but it actually started way, way before that. Uh, when I was uh, a kid on the west side of Columbus, Ohio, I grew up on the, in the bottoms, uh, grew up in a fatherless home, grew up in a single parent home, uh, three older sisters. Uh, so that was rough growing up in a house of, uh, of, of ladies, but uh, I survived by the grace of God. And, and really, when you were raised in that environment, it taught me three things. Number one, how to be sensitive to the needs of others. Number two, how to be compassionate to the pain points of others. And number three, how to put together a game plan to help people through their difficulties in life. So that's what I learned from all of the ladies early on in my life, my three sisters, 
My mother is very important. It shaped really my compassion filter. And when I worked at Cooper Stadium, so Cooper Stadium uh, is on the west side of Columbus. That's where the Columbus Clippers uh, played most of their games or all of their games early on. Um, and when I worked there as a, as a young vendor, so 12 years of age, I remember seeing some of the uh, baseball players who end up going on and playing for the New York Yankees. And I said, man, if I've ever given an opportunity to give back and to help other people, particularly young people who grew up like me, I would. So that really started when I was about 12, 13 years of age. And then about 16 years later is when I really started the Lawrence from the youth organization in 1998. So that's really what it was. And I always say that that dream was really the down payment for our youth organization, which obviously came to to fruition uh, in uh, September of 1998. It really has come to fruition. Just a quick glance at your website, which, by the way, is MrFundy.com. That's M-R-F-U-N-D-Y for those who would like to take a peek. You have so many different programs for youth in the Central Ohio community. What do some of those programs address? Yeah, you know, one of the big things that we're doing right now, and I had a meeting with uh, Zach Klein, a city attorney for Columbus, and we, we had a meeting. I said, listen, I said, um, you know, he he uh, saw the program that we were doing through the years. He says, I love what you're doing with young people, and we have a lot of results, uh, positive results, because, number one, I treat the kids like they're my own. Number two, I give them a game plan in terms of what they can do to achieve success. And number three, I just keep it very practical, tactical, and musical in terms of our approach with young people. So we had a meeting, and, and, and I talked to him. I said, look, we got to get some mentoring for our young kids because we can teach them about job skills readiness. We can focus on education. We can focus on financial life skills, all these things. But if you don't really address some of these root causes, right, I always say you got to get to the roots in order to have any chance with the offshoots, right, because the offshoots do not exist unless you first – have some success with the roots. So the mentoring program is really the key, and that's really helping kids have a sense of purpose, who uh, understanding of who they are, how they're wired, you know, maybe why some of the things that they had dif- difficulties with, particularly with trauma. You know, I've been there, had that done to me, unfortunately. So you, you, you've got to be able to meet kids where they are and be able to transport them where they need to go. So I talked to uh, Mr. Klein about this program and about mentoring is the key. Not only uh, adult mentoring in terms of with kids, but peer-to-peer mentoring is really what's going to move the needle and change our society. So our initiative, we've got a lot of things on our website, but our main focus really for uh, this year, 2024, and even 2025 is really mentoring, because if we miss the mark there, we have no chance of helping our kids. It's been said that it takes a village to raise a child. Most of us know this, but I add this, that it requires a community to repair a broken soul. And that's exactly where we are right now. Our young people, particularly black and brown, inner city, certainly are hurting. And even kids in suburban communities, well-to-do and affluent, are hurting as well. So we've got to really give back to or have a sense of what a community is. And it takes a team of willing and like-minded individuals to help our young people. Because if we want this country to go and to move further, we can't do this unless we make the targeted investment in our young people today. Since 1998, the Lawrence Funderburg Youth Organization has impacted the lives of more than 30,000 youth and families, and not just here in Columbus, but across the country. Mm -hmm. You played basketball professionally in Sacramento, and I know Mm -hmm. you did work there as well as in Chicago, Houston, and Atlanta. I would imagine 
as much as these are different communities and demographics across the country, there's probably some similarities that you see with young people and at-risk youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, all, all throughout the state, New York, uh, Atlanta, you know, all of these different places, and Philadelphia. The, the interesting thing is that kids are kids, but some kids in certain areas have a more hardened exterior than other kids, right? And you've got to be able to, to, to kind of penetrate, penetrate that to be able to help them understand that even though they go through difficulties or even though they go through trauma, they don't always have to stay traumatized. So my story allows me to be able to help them uh, have a sense of awareness because one thing I know about today's kids, whether wherever they're from, right, inner city, Appalachia, suburban, they can spot a phony a mile away. So uh, when it comes to just that frequency or that connection with young people, I always say you have to be relatable, you have to be reliable, and you have to be recognizable. You have to be relatable in terms of your life experiences, some kind of way, have to be able to speak to the, the young people and what they're dealing with or what they're going through. Number two, you have to be reliable, meaning your word has to be, it must matter. And I think for a lot of kids, a lot of people made a lot of promises in their lives and never really uh, kept their end of the bargain. So the one thing I say, look, I'm going to keep my word with you. And number two is recognizable, someone that they can see and say, you know what? I can be this person. I can have success. I can get past this. I can overcome mental health or drug addiction or whatever the case may be. And, and that is really where you got to be to be able to help our young people is speak to their needs. And one way you do that is you have to be transparent. And I always say transparency involves three things. Number one, you have to be truthful in terms of the information that you share, but you know can be used against you, not just in a court of law, but in a court of public opinion. And I think it's very important that as adults that you're vulnerable. A lot of, of, of adults don't want to be vulnerable because they feel like they can use that. But kids got to be able to relate to you, and that's that vulnerability in terms of being truthful. You have to be tactful. You got to put some guidelines and guardrails in terms of what you say and how you share it. When it comes to our young people, it's very important that you pay attention to that. And then the most important thing is if you're if you're truthful, if you're tactful, you got to be tuneful. You got to have a connection that their station, whatever their station that they're going through in life, you got to be able to meet that. Obviously, being a, a radio personality, you know. Right. That if it's, say, 97.6 and I use this example, how a kid who's has a ninth uh, birthday at the local park in that seven hour period sees six people who overdose on drugs. And that was the down payment for that person's uh, drug addiction. And that child didn't even know it. So when when it comes to the frequency or the connection, it's the station that you got to tune in based on that person's pain. And we all have pain. It doesn't matter what our life standing is. All of us have pain to some degree or another. No human being is immune to that. And I think that's why our program has had the success, because when they get me, they get someone who's going to be authentic, who's going to always have their best interests at heart, who is always going to be helping them understand it's not how you start in life, it's how you finish. Lawrence Funderburk is a Columbus native, born and raised in a single-parent home with sisters. He just told us that he learned a lot about empathy and understanding other human beings by living in that environment and growing up that way. Went on to Ohio State to play basketball and played in the NBA and is now giving back to the community that helped raise him with the Lawrence Funderburk Youth Organization. Now, Lawrence, you also have a big focus on financial literacy for young people. Mm -hmm. 
Is that a relatively new thing that you saw arise from a need in the community? Well, obviously, the common denominator when it comes to disadvantaged communities. So two communities that we've spent a lot of time. Uh, number one is my community, inner city African-American community, obviously growing up in public housing on welfare for 18 years. So that's always been a staple. And then uh, also uh, the Appalachian community, because on the west side, you had inner city blacks and Appalachian whites really living side by side. Obviously, there were risks in terms of racially. And then my wife's from, she's an African-American, but she's from Chillicothe, Ohio. And we know that the Appalachian part of the state has been decimated. When people think about poverty in inner city, Appalachian poverty matches. Now, they may have different skin color, but the same level of dysfunction and, and pain and turmoil and trauma that you see in inner city communities, you see the same in Appalachian communities. So we focus really on these, on these two uh, distinct uh, classifications, but yet they kind of have the same needs in terms of how we can help them. So that's really was a huge focus of ours. And then uh, economics, which is the financial life skills, um, we really focused a lot on that because we realized that the, that it, obviously if it's a money related, then you got to think about education, you got to think about getting a job, you got to think about making money from that job and being able to manage it as well. So we focused on that. So money is obviously something that we we all need, and 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 what we end up finding out too that financial life skills are a good thing, but the mentoring piece is critically important as well because most of the kids are hit and miss, and sometimes coming to these programs, park and recreation centers, different things. You got to give them a reason to keep showing back up, and I always tell them, look. You don't need to know who I am. You just need to know who I'm about. And the business that I'm about is helping you so you can become successful in life. I don't want anything. You all, Woody Hayes talked about this all the time. Just pay it forward. And if you pay it forward, you don't never have to pay me back. So that's how we, we, we really talk to the kids. And I think what the kids really see is that someone who really understands them because different day, different time, but you know, you still have to go through the same difficulties and the same dysfunctions that um, that are common across uh, different um, uh, age and and then also time demographics. So that's really a little bit in a nutshell, kind of what we focus on: uh, financial life skills, but job skills, career readiness, uh, helping kids go to college. We set up a college scholarship uh, fund. My my wife and I, six figure fund. We've given away uh, over a hundred thousand dollars in scholarships to our alma mater, Ohio State. Um, so I think it's very important that whatever you practice or you preach, you also have to follow it up. You got to back it up. And I think that's one of the things that kids look for, too, is consistency in people that they can trust, as I said, who are relatable, reliable and recognizable. Lawrence, what is one big lesson that you can say you've learned from working with youth or maybe something that surprised you that you learned from working with young people? Yeah, you know, uh, people would always ask me who were my role models when I was a kid, and and they weren't athletes, they weren't entertainers, uh, they were educators. They were my teachers because um, I I every day uh, I went to school, and I tell people this that I never took a day off in the classroom, but I took a lot of days off on the court in terms of my effort, and, and I admit that, you know, um, but. Um, I, I, when I work with young people and I tell them this, and, and they're surprised by this, is that I learn as much from them as they learn from me because I'm always asking them questions, the who, the what, the why, the when. The how. I'm always asking them. I've always been a very inquisitive person. Uh, my mom called me Huckleberry Finn because 
I was always on the go. I had people to meet, places to, to go, and predicaments to overcome. And so I was always curious in terms of that. You know, what is this? Why is this? You know, where all of this? And that when kids see that I take an active interest in who they are, they come alive because you're treating them like an individual, like a person, and I think they respect that. And I always say that two-way learning is very important. And I always say that um, a great teacher is also a willing student. And so that's one of the things that I learn a lot from young people is I learn more than they learn from me, even though the information they learn from me is totally new to them in their way of thinking. Lawrence Funderburk, you started your college basketball career in Indiana under Coach Bobby Knight. You said if we mm-hmm. have time, you'd love Uh-oh. to touch on that, and we yes. have time. What yes. what can you tell us about yes. that experience? You know, going back, uh, so if we if we if we go back, um, so uh, as I said, I, I grew up uh, in the eighties, uh, born in the seventies, grew up in the eighties, uh, west side of Columbus, Ohio, single parent household. Uh, never knew my father. Saw him three times my whole life. My father never one time told me that he loved me. Uh, he never kept his word. The times when he said he was going to come and see me, he was an alcoholic, and he cared more about the bottle than about the emotions bottled up inside of me. And I remember when I was getting recruited. You know, one of the top five high school players in the country. Every school wanted me. Um, and um, when Coach Knight was recruiting me, and I would tell people that uh, I need discipline. Well, what I really was saying was I need I need the love and care and concern from my daddy, right, or from someone in that capacity. That's really what I was looking for, and that's why I think a lot of young uh, young males seek um, to have a relationship with me because they see me as a father figure. But I always tell them that my kids come always come first. But with Coach Knight, you know, um, you don't really know until you actually get to the school. So recruiting me and everyone says, you know, it's not going to work out, blah, blah, blah. So I go there. I sign with Coach Knight. We have a good relationship going early. And then he kicks me out of practice after I scored 26 points. And he says, I want to enjoy um, <laughs> the rest of practice without Lawrence messing it up. He, he said some other words, but uh, I'm going to keep it G-rated for this particular <laughs> show. But um, when, you, when you're in this environment around a legend, and he is a living legend, that you realize how his mind thinks, right? But the thing that I learn, and I always learn from everybody, no matter any coach, any person, I'm always thinking, what can I learn from this individual? And I learn how important it is to relate to people and to always understand that you do not always have to be an authority figure in order to have the respect and the care and concern that you need to get or receive from from those under your care. So that's one of the things that I, I try to convey with people is that you can learn from anyone and even with coach Knight from a guy who was just a brilliant mind but I think he he was so consumed and wrapped around basketball I know he's not uh, in the land of the living anymore and I I didn't get a chance to to make peace with him because we kind of left and I never really talked to him and coach was is either his way or the highway and I told people I said look if if I were to see him while he was a living I, I would tell him hey coach you know I love you even though it didn't work out with us because of the respect that I have. And I think you have to learn how to have honor and respect for others. And I always say, even when that adult is wrong, you have to be right in your response to that person. And I think that's the problem in our society today. We don't know how to walk in honor. And I think that is really um, has a critical effect and a paralyzing effect in our society today. 
Lawrence Funderburk, you have done some amazing things in your time off and on the court, and it's such a pleasure to mm-hmm. speak with you today. Was there anything else that you wanted to add before we go? Well, I, I think uh, w- one of the questions that you have in, in preliminary was how can people get involved? And I always say this, that uh, when you see a need and don't fulfill it, a lot of innocent people get hurt in the process. And I think that's the problem with our society. We're waiting for Superman or Superwoman or, or someone to come in and rescue. When the reality is, is that when we see a need, we've got to be willing to do our part to fulfill it. And I think that's the problem in America today because we're so polarized in terms of racially, politically, economically, socially, all these different, uh, you know, factions. The problem is, is that you got to be willing to step forward to help someone else. And I think that's the problem in America is that we're waiting for someone else to do something that we have the responsibility and even the capability to do on our own. So I, I would challenge all of the listeners that when you think about how you can make a difference in our society, yes, you can focus on the, on the, on the, the philanthropic side, right? That's, that's kind of, you know, something you can do. But I think the most challenging part is look in within your family, right? Who can you mentor? Who, who can you assist? Who can you help? How about professionally on your job? How can you be a difference maker with the people you come in contact with? And I think that's the problem is we always want to go outside when we should start inside and then work to, to, to make our communities better on the outside. And I think that if you're pointing your finger at someone, something, or some system, okay, you have three pointing right back at you. And I always say if we work on ourselves three times more than someone, something, or some system, our country would not be in the condition or the mess that it's in right now. So I always tell people, I call it the three times rule. doesn't have to be the ten times rule. Just be three times better than where you are. If we do that, then our society will be much better than where it is right now. If you'd like to be a difference maker with the Lawrence Funderburk Youth Organization, you can go to mrfundy.com. That's mrfundy.com. Lawrence Funderburk, we appreciate your time so much here on Columbus Perspective today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. God bless. Overcoming drug addiction was difficult, but I found the path to recovery that worked for me. The road to recovery is different for everyone. Find the path that works for you. Learn more at cdc.gov slash stop overdose. Parenting is hard. Technology can make it harder. The family media plan developed by the American Academy of Pediatrics helps make it easier. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan to create the media plan that's right for your family. Whether you make a full plan or just choose a few parts that matter the most to your family, healthychildren.org forward slash media plan is an easy to use tool that will help your family set media priorities and create healthy digital habits in line with your family's values. You'll also get practical tips to help make the plan work. And you can come back to revise your plan as often as you need to, like at the beginning of each school year or during summer and holiday breaks. Raising kids in the age of screens is easier when you have a plan. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan and make your plan today. According to the FBI, every year an estimated 460,000 children are reported missing in the United States. It's no wonder then that it's a frequently asked question. Are Amber Alerts issued for all missing children? 
To verify the answer to this question, we checked with the Office of Justice Programs in the Department of Justice, reviewed the 2003 PROTECT Act, looked at the Ohio Amber Alert Plan website, and talked to the chair of the Northeast Ohio Amber Alert Committee and the Village of Newburgh Heights Police Chief, John Majoy. Here's what we learned. The AMBER in AMBER Alert stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. The alert system was created in 1996 to help find abducted children. And when the PROTECT Act passed in 2003, it created minimum federal standards for when the alerts can be sent out, which states can then add to. Today. There are 82 individual Amber Alert plans across the U.S. According to Ohio's Amber Alert Plan website, ohioamberplan.org, the four criteria that must be met before an Amber Alert is issued in Ohio are the child is under age 18, the abduction poses a credible threat of immediate danger, serious bodily harm or death to the child, there's enough description of the child, suspect, or circumstances of the abduction that an alert will help find the child. And the child is not a runaway or taken by family unless the child is in immediate danger of serious bodily harm or death. If your missing child doesn't meet the four criteria, officials can still help you as Northeast Ohio Amber Alert Committee Chair and Village of Newburgh Heights Police Chief John Majoy explains here. The only difference is you don't get the EAS, which is breaking into the television and radio, and you don't get the WE alert, which is a wireless emergency activation, which breaks into your cell phones and wakes you up in the middle of the night or in the morning, whatever. So we can verify the answer to the question is no. Amber alerts are not issued for all missing children. According to the Office of Justice Program, as of the end of last year, there have been nearly 1,200 children brought home safely after Amber Alerts were issued for them. That was since the system started being used. And 165 kids have been rescued because of wireless emergency alerts. With your Verify, I'm Stephanie Haney. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Now courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. I'm joined by two reporters with a lot of experience covering the state's politics and government. Joe Ingalls is a reporter and producer with Ohio Public Radio and Television. And Jeremy Pelzer is the politics reporter for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thank you both for being here. Jeremy, you've been reporting a lot on this issue with a kind of a little-known uh, law or a little-known um, requirement for somebody to run for office, and it might be keeping some transgender candidates off ballots. Can you explain what that is and where it stands? Yeah, with uh, lawmakers moving uh, House Bill 68 and a number of anti-transgender bills, you've seen an uptick in the number of transgender candidates wanting to run for the legislature to stop this. And uh, they've run, however, into this little-known law, as you said. It says that if you've gone by a prior name in the past five years, you have to put on your campaign form that prior name. Otherwise, you're not allowed to run for office. And if you're elected, you're immediately thrown out of office. And so this is uh, three candidates in particular have been um, <clears throat> have not done as they've violated the law doing this. However, there's been a split 
about who's been allowed to run and who's not. Vanessa Joy in Stark County has been disqualified from running. But two other candidates, uh, Bobby Arnold in Preble County and um, Arian Childry up in Auglaize County, they've been allowed to stay in the ballot. And uh, experts I talked to, again, as a common theme of this show, is that this will probably end up in court. Yeah. Now, does this, would this impact, like, say, um, you know, a person who gets married and takes their spouse's name? So the state law specifically exempts people who change their name because of marriage. Uh, and so that might be one of the things that might be in the lawsuit saying, well, this violates equal protection because, uh, you know, you can, you're exempt for this reason, but not for this other reason. And I have to note, too, this isn't just about transgender people. It, uh, no one has alleged that uh, these elections officials have kept anyone off the ballot because they were transgender. I believe you've also reported that this had, you know, this wasn't something that came up and was changed because of transgender issues being in the news. This is something that's been on the books, right? It's been on the books for decades. Okay. And if you think about it, um, a lot of the incumbent politicians who have been around for a long time do not use their formal given name on the ballot. For example, Governor Mike DeWine, his first name is actually Richard. He goes by Mike DeWine. He's gone by Mike DeWine for decades. but uh, And he would be allowed to run, obviously. He's run as Governor Mike DeWine. So so he's allowed to do that because of the time period, but this definitely uh, is an advantage for incumbent candidates. What are you anticipating from, you know, I guess the first quarter, the first half of the uh, second year of this General Assembly? Uh, I'm not thinking we're going to see much before that March primary. Then after that, I think that the budget is capital probably budget. going, yes, the mm-hmm. capital budget, it's probably going to suck all the air out of the room, and lawmakers are going to have to deal with that because yeah. there's a timeline on that. They have to have that done by the end of June. So uh, I think that's where we're going to see it go. I don't think we're going to see uh, things like, you know, property taxes and, you know, other issues addressed. Um, I, I may be surprised, though. So, uh, Last year, the legislature passed the fewest number of bills it's passed in a year since the mid-1950s. Mm-hmm. And I think that this legislature is going to continue that trend this year because now it's an election year, as, as Joe said. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there are some obviously some bills on the table that might see action, though, one of them being Senate Bill 83, which would be a higher education overhaul. It's designed to reduce what uh, its backers say is uh, liberal bias on the college The diversity, campuses. equity, and inclusion issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, among a number of other things. Yeah. Uh, um, it, one of the things that originally would have done was ban faculty strikes. That's been taken, taken out. out right. uh, but the, it would do a number of things, uh, also prevent uh, uh, collaborations with Chinese universities, things like that. Yeah. And it seems to me that a lot of the focus, too, has been, you know, because of issue one on abortion, issue mm-hmm. two on marijuana, redistricting, right. now the, the transgender HB 68 bill, a lot of that has been such a focus that the other things have been kind of left on the, the wayside for now. And we can look, um, you know, after the primary, I think we could see some consolidation. Some of these bills that are standalone bills can be rolled into something else where they're not as noticeable. We saw that last year with the budget. If you look at the budget, there were a lot of things that were put in the budget, a lot of controversial bills, uh, for example, the one with the, involving the Department of Education and putting it under the governor's control in many ways, that went into the budget uh, and didn't pass as a, like a standalone bill. So I think, you know, in that period between March and the end of June, we could see uh, a lot of things that we're talking about now as standalone bills. We could see those uh, being rolled into something else. Well, thank you both for your, your insight here. I, I really appreciate your 
your experience and knowledge in covering the state houses. I'm still relatively new to this, and, and you've also been very helpful to me in getting my feet under me at the state house too. So I appreciate you both for that as well. Thank You're doing you. Doing a great job. Thank yes, you, you are. Thank you very you much. Are. Tell my boss to her. <laughs> Again, that's Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.